0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: All right, come on through into the labs, please. Okay, thank you very much. So what are we looking at here? What's this lab? So this is the chemical analysis lab. So here we determine the elements of various compounds in plants. Okay, let's have a look. Okay, let's come through.
2: in Brisbane, and at the moment we're staring at some glowing green stuff, churning away inside a small oven-like apparatus. The machine itself looks a little bit like one of those trapping devices they used in the movie Ghostbusters. Our guide, by the way, is Dr. Anthony van der Ent from the University of Queensland. So looking inside here, how hot is that in there? Uh, that's between 8 and 10,000 degrees Celsius, so it's, it's an it... induction coil. And it's very green, isn't it? It's like luminescent green.
1: Yeah, that's from argon. So the argon gas carries the sample into the plasma and it atomizes every element that is in there and it then emits light and the wavelength of light is specific to each element. And so with this machine, what are you trying to do? What does this do? It essentially determines the concentrations of zinc or selenium or nickel or any other element in a plant sample. And the eventual aim
2: is to start commercially harvesting precious metals that can be used to help build and power our smart devices. Harvested, not mined. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. We'll talk with Dr Van Der Ant in just a moment, and we'll also hear a little later in the program about the latest research into why many of us still get sick when we use virtual reality devices and what's meant by the term edge
3: computing. So the key premise of edge computing is to bring a selected set of services of an application outside the very centralized and faraway data centers and place them at the network edge for processing, which will be closer to the users. What we're seeing right now is a rapid expansion in the number of devices getting connected to the Internet. And more and more applications are requiring real-time processing. And there's also a global shift in attitudes towards a more ethical and sustainable internet that is challenging the current working model. A supplement to the cloud that's coming up shortly.
2: Now, let's go back to the lab and the process of harvesting metal from plants. It's called agro-mining. And Dr. Anthony van der Ent is one of the leaders in the field. His research focuses on certain types of plants known as hyperaccumulators, which
1: literally suck minerals from the soil. In most cases, the elements accumulate throughout the plants, so in the leaves and in different parts of the plant, even in the flowers and in the seeds. But there's a few instances known of nickel hyperaccumulators where the concentration of nickel in the sap is particularly high. So you can have quite low concentrations of, say, nickel in the soil, and the plant is able to accumulate to very high concentrations.
2: Tell us about the physiology of all of this. How do these minerals actually affect the look and function of the plant, if indeed they do?
1: Yeah, so we think that hyperaccumulators have evolved the mechanisms for hyperaccumulation as a protection mechanism. So nickel in its soluble form is toxic to insects and other animals. So we think that Plants have evolved hyperaccumulation to protect themselves against herbivores, like insects. So many plants make alkaloids, which are toxic. And uh, this is another strategy for plants to evolve and survive. And are these plants, are they unusual to look at? Is there anything that's characteristic or distinctive about them? No, unfortunately, you can't actually see from a plant from the outside whether it's a hyperaccumulator or not. So there's very many uh, different plant families that have hyperaccumulators. So there's no common denominator how you could recognize it. However, we use technologies like handheld XRF, which is an instrument which can measure concentrations of elements on the spot to find them in the field, for example.
2: Are these hyperaccumulator plants, are they rare or do we see a lot of this in nature?
1: No, they're very rare. So currently we know of about 700 hyperaccumulator plants around the world, but there's over 300,000 plants known. So it's a very small fraction of all the plants uh, that, that are known on Earth.
2: And I understand you yourself have identified new ones, is that correct?
1: Yes, we're discovering new ones every day, basically. and particularly Australia has been very productive, basically because there's not a lot of work being done thus far to, to try to find them across Australia. And of course, Australia's biodiversity is extremely high, over 20,000 plant species. So there's a lot of potential to discover more.
2: Where are they most common? Because you've actually, not so much since COVID, obviously, but uh, you've actually travelled all around the world looking for these hyperaccumulator plants, haven't you?
1: Yes, so the, the most common ones are for nickel, and we found them in Southeast Asia in particular, as well as in New Caledonia, and in Cuba and Brazil. So in these countries around the equator is where they're most common. You said
2: earlier that some plants can actually have high concentration of minerals. How much are we talking about? I mean, how much metal can these plants hold?
1: And so it depends on the element in question. So the strongest ones are probably for nickel. So we know of a tree in New Caledonia that can have 25% of nickel in its sap. And so its sap has a its latex, has a very bright green blue color yeah, just from the nickel that's in there so that's probably the most extreme example
2: and now nickel's an interesting mineral, isn't it, because you get high prices for nickel. So I presume plants that accumulate nickel are you know, among the top performers, the ones that uh, you and others are going to be
1: most interested in. Most of our work is focused on nickel. One, because we have very many hyperaccumulators for nickel in the tropics. So out of those 700 hyperaccumulators that we know today, about 400 of them are nickel hyperaccumulators. And we are quite actively developing what we call metal farming of nickel hyperaccumulator plants in tropical countries and that includes operating
2: a demonstration metal farm in Malaysia, which has been running for the past five years. It's about 1.5 hectares in size, and according to Dr Van Der Ent, over that time it's produced continuous yields of between 200 and
1: 300 kilograms of nickel per hectare per year. So most processes consist, at least in tropical regions, of pruning the plants. So these are woody plants. So you prune them and that biomass is then dried, incinerated. And that ash, which we call bio ore, contains up to 30% nickel. So it's extremely high-grade ore, which can then be processed using standard hydrometallurgical techniques. All right, so this is the, the lab where we do some experimentation with hyperaccumulator plants. In these boxes we got macadamia. So macadamia is a proteaceae. of course it produced the macadamia nut, uh, but it's also hypercumulative of manganese. So concentration of manganese can be extremely high in, in macadamia. Uh, not in in the fruits though, the nuts that you eat. And we're trying to see if we can use macadamia to produce a concentrate of manganese. So these are
2: reasonably established plants from the look of them.
1: Uh, so these plants have been grown from seeds and are about 12 months old. So the Probably about close to a meter tall now.
2: Now, agro mining or metal farming or phytomining, as it's also known, take your pick, can also bring much needed income to local communities and it's good for the environment. For
1: nickel in particular, we see two strategies. The first one is that we could do this metal farming for nickel in areas where there are natural occurrences of nickel in the soil, and this is the case in large parts of Indonesia. Now, these soils are very infertile, so you can't grow normal crops on them, like rice or corn. So you could do this metal farming on those types of soils, particularly by smallholder farmers, which produce this nickel-rich biomass, which can then be processed by industry. The other strategy is to do this as part of mine rehabilitation, where you've had strip mining for nickel, which is a common practice in tropical regions, where you could integrate the the metal farming as part of the, the progressive rehabilitation. So typically, rehabilitation costs money, so this is a strategy where you could actually offset some of those costs as part of the the, the rehabilitation program. So with the mining rehabilitation, would these plants
2: actually help in reducing contamination?
1: Yes. Over time, the hyperaccumulators will extract all of the nickel from the soil or all of the available nickel from the soil. And as a consequence, the soil then becomes no longer toxic to most other crops that you could grow on them. And one of the other important outcomes of the process is that you generate soils that are conductive to other uses. So you said there are test fields up
2: and running at the moment. Are there any actual profitable farms or hasn't it yet got to the commercialization stage?
1: We're not yet at the commercialization stage, so what needs to happen really is to get a full-scale demonstration site up to prove the operational parameters over time, over a number of years, to see what the yields are that we can achieve over time and how the biomass is being processed. So yeah, we're hoping to get an industry partner involved to get that up and running. And what sort of contribution could
2: this process make to the supply of metal for, again, things like our technology? Could it be significant or is it really just going to be useful but niche?
1: Yeah, so there's been a lot of comments from Elon Musk and others on the essentiality of nickel in particular in lithium-ion batteries and a demand hence for nickel that is sustainably sourced. Now, most of the nickel comes from countries like Indonesia and Caledonia, where it's been mined at fairly great in- environmental cost. So we hope that at least the mining aspect could be part of the strategy to source nickel in a more environmentally sustainable way.
2: Now there are also potential medical benefits from this type of technology, aren't there?
1: Yes, they are. So two elements, zinc and selenium, they can be used in something called biofortification. So zinc and selenium, there are many people around the world that are deficient in these elements, essentially because the staple crops in many, particularly developing countries, are very low in zinc and in selenium. So we could actually use zinc and selenium hyperaccumulator plants to produce biomass that is enriched in these elements which could then be used either for biofortification, which is the the process of increasing the concentration of zinc or selenium in crops. Or you could use it as a supplement that people could consume to to increase their intake. Would that be cost effective? Yes. So selenium hypercumular plants are extremely efficient at taking up selenium from the soil. So there's an area in central Australia in which the soils are naturally enriched in selenium where there's an endemic plant uh, that accumulates selenium in in central Queensland that grows there. And you could harvest that biomass and turn it into pharmaceutical compounds of selenium. Dr. Anthony van der Ent, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
2: And Dr. van der Ent is a senior fellow with the Sustainable Minerals Institute at the University of Queensland. Virtual reality has, in many ways, transformed the way we play. first step is to get your shoes and put uh, the army shoes on. We're we'll give you the proper training first. It's also found social purpose, as we've discussed on this program in the past, by assisting the intellectually impaired to understand complex ideas, for example, or helping ex-soldiers deal with post-traumatic stress. In recent times, as many of us have been confined to our homes, virtual exergaming has also become a popular pastime. But for all its benefits, virtual reality has an underlying problem. It can make some people sick. And I have to confess, I'm one of them. Dr Ancray Spuck is a researcher at the University of South Australia, specialising in the cognitive after-effects of using virtual reality for extended periods of time.
0: Recently, we actually did a very large review looking at all the studies that have reported cyber sickness and that look at people who self-report on a particular questionnaire. And we found a few interesting things with that study. And one of the things was, across all of the studies that we looked at, about 16% of people would get cyber sickness that is so severe that they can't continue with the virtual reality experience. And essentially of the people who are able to stay for the remainder of those studies, that quite a, a large proportion of people, particularly with virtual reality gaming content, will still experience quite a, a significant level of sickness.
2: What are some of the theories, or what are the main theories, why there is this thing called cyber sickness?
0: So I guess one of the main theory at the moment is what we call the sensory conflict theory. And essentially just to sort of break it down, why people experience motion sickness is because there's a mismatch between the visual input, so the things that people see when they're looking in virtual reality, and the sensations and things that the body is experiencing. So in the real world, if we are looking at something that's moving, Our body will give us all the sensations and things that are related to that. Whereas in virtual reality, you know, we might be sitting on a chair and you might be doing something in virtual reality, like running or something that is completely different from what your body is experiencing. And because of that conflict, our sort of brain struggles to deal with that conflict and try to integrate these conflicting senses. That's why people experience motion sickness. There are also other factors that might contribute to this. So things like content can play a role. So if there's a lot of motion in a scene or if the user is experiencing a lot of motion, potentially disorientating content as well, all those things might actually have an effect on how severe a person might experience cyber sickness.
2: Now, if you are one of those people who's used virtual reality and you find that you do get symptoms of uh, cyber sickness, is there anything you can do to minimise those or, or is it simply a matter of, of trying to avoid certain types of applications?
0: There are a few things that you can do. The first, potentially most simple thing that you can do is a lot of virtual reality headsets have what we call a IPD setting. So that essentially stands for interpupillary distance setting. And you you can adjust that to the distance of your eyes. So your eyes might be a different distance apart to another person. You can actually measure from the center of one pupil to the center of the other pupil. And a lot of virtual reality headsets will allow you to adjust that setting. And that essentially what it does is when you adjust that setting, it, it sort of moves the lenses a bit. So essentially what would happen is that when you look in the lenses, there would be an optimal setting for basically the distance between your eyes. So that's a really important thing to do and that can help people to reduce things like visual symptoms of headaches and disorientation. The other things that people can do is that it's important to, maybe before you go in for a longer session of virtual reality, is to try to test out shorter exposures. And the reason being is that there's quite a bit of research demonstrating that the longer you are in virtual reality, the higher chance that you will experience more severe symptoms. And people, I guess, who experience symptoms after short exposures might be able to try some other techniques like maybe taking breaks between different short exposures rather than committing to a longer exposure. What we recommend is that after you, you use virtual reality is that people actually commit to a waiting period in the event that a person might have after effects like disorientation. So, for example, if you're experiencing disorientation after using virtual reality, it's probably not a good idea to go and drive. And with our study, for example, we had a look and we committed people to a 40-minute waiting period. And for most people, this 40-minute waiting period after virtual for a very long exposure was sufficient for people's symptoms to return back to baseline levels.
2: And you've done recent research, haven't you, looking at the use of virtual reality in what are called exergames, so exercising using virtual reality. And that waiting period, I think you found was quite important for people who were suffering adverse effects.
0: Absolutely, yes. You know, the research that we have done in exergames, we looked at essentially one of the most popular exergames that's used at the moment, and that's called Beat Saber. And in that game, People have lightsabers, and it's a rhythm game, so people have to use those lightsabers to hit boxes in time to the music. It's extremely popular at the moment. It's I think it's the highest-ranking virtual reality game. And we looked at short 10-minute exposures and long 50-minute exposures. And people sort of tested out Beat Saber on two different days. And essentially, we monitored people's symptoms before, immediately after VR, and 40 minutes after they finish playing virtuality. And generally we find that immediately after VR, that when we look at statistics at a group level, that on average people experience symptoms of virtuality success immediately after VR. But then that forty minutes later, those symptoms will be reduced and returned to baseline. However, sort of as I mentioned before, is that when we look at individual level We find that one in seven people, which was about 14% in our study, one in seven people will still report a high level of symptoms 40 minutes later. And this is quite surprising because you would think that after 40 minutes that no one should be experiencing any symptoms. And I think that this is just a a really good example to demonstrate that, you know, some of these virtually sickness symptoms can be persistent and technology is new so we still need to be cautious how we use it and we need to be aware of how virtual reality might affect you as individual and monitor your own symptoms so that you can actually use virtual reality safely
2: and so are the developers of virtual reality technology is cyber sickness a a big issue for them
0: you know i think with developers you know they might look at things a little bit differently You know, some people say that the more you use it, the less your symptoms might get. So I guess with developers, if they're using virtual reality a lot, that they might experience less and less symptoms over time. I guess the research on that, on on whether people habituate to virtual reality exposures is still something that's undergoing. So we don't know a lot about that. There's some interesting um, hardware and software innovations that developers and virtual reality companies might have tried. They have looked at things like multifocal displays. Multifocal displays is to help reduce some of the visual symptoms and and disorientation that people might experience. That might contribute to virtual sickness. So the idea is that you could adjust the display at multiple depth planes. So this is still very cutting edge technology and it's still under development, but it is an interesting, I guess, idea on, on how people can change hardware that might help with some of these symptoms that people experience. But essentially at this point, it hasn't been made small enough to be able to put into a virtual headset. Some of the other interesting, I guess, software things that developers have tried is using a REST frame. So the idea is that very similar to how people might fixate on the horizon if they're feeling sick, they have tried to to put something like this in virtual reality. And some of the interesting innovations of this is that people have tried to look at whether using a virtual nose might help with that. So the idea with that is that if there is a visual frame of reference, this can potentially help to reduce some of the sensory conflict that people might experience. So there's like a steady point in your vision that you can look at when you might be looking at things in the scene that are moving. So there's some interesting things people have tried to avoid this, but there's still a lot of research and development that's going into some of these new technologies.
2: Well, Dr. Ankhrej Spak, thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense.
0: And thank you. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead, and signposting the future.
2: It doesn't seem all that long ago on this program that we were explaining a new way of processing and storing digital information known as the cloud. Actually, now that I say it, it does seem like a while back. Anyway, We're all now familiar with the benefits and pitfalls of cloud computing. But what about edge computing? What? You've never heard of it? Well, you're in luck, because here to explain the concept and the technology is Dr. Blessen Vargas from the Edge Computing Hub at Queen's University, Belfast.
3: So let's think of how the internet works. If you have a smartphone or a gadget that produces data, the data from these devices usually get sent to the cloud for processing and storage. And these are large server rooms that sit miles away from people. This is how the internet works today, and it works reasonably well for most people. But what we're seeing right now is a rapid expansion in the number of devices getting connected to the internet. And more and more applications are requiring real-time processing. And there's also a global shift in attitudes towards a more ethical and sustainable internet that is challenging the current working model of the internet. So the key premise of edge computing is to bring a selected set of services of an application outside the very centralized and far away data centers and place them at the network edge for processing, which will be closer to the users. And the edge of the network could be on home routers, for example, or they could be on in micro data centers that are located behind, let's say, mobile base stations that are visible to people. So data generated by the end user devices will be pre-processed at the edge before it is sent to faraway clouds. And this idea then of the edge would be
2: for a much more decentralized system of processing and storage of data, would it? than the uh, you know the cloud, which is essentially, as you said, uh, you know just a, a series of huge
3: data servers. That is correct, Anthony. So the premise here is that we will be able to decentralize some of the compute and be able to place them closer to the user. Now what that helps us is that it helps real-time processing required by users. We have limitations in terms of how much data we can send because of the law of physics. We can't do anything faster than the speed of light. And then we've also got some other advantages of doing this by decentralising compute. One of them would be we can process sensitive data closer to the user and to the edge. And what applications would that faster speed be required or, or necessary? So within the edge computing research community, there are generally two types of applications that are understood that could benefit from edge computing. The first one is called edge native. And these are applications that cannot come into existence in the real world, unless there is compute available at the edge for processing. Now, these applications cannot use the cloud as we know it today. So an example of that might be video analytics required for the safety of an autonomous car or it could be augmented reality for helping people with cognitive impairment, or it could be real-time processing in a manufacturing setting. So all these are edge native applications and they require the edge. The second class of application is what's called as edge accelerated. Now these applications are in existence today in some shape or form and they make use of the cloud, but they can be improved on when we use the edge because certain features of these applications can be improved. So online gaming is one example over here. So even if we have a lag of a few milliseconds, it's latency critical, but it's not life critical in any shape or form. Or if you think of streaming services like Netflix or any of those type of media services, they use edge locations to cache popular content and so on.
2: Now, you mentioned earlier that you see environmental benefits from this edge approach.
3: Just take us through those. One of the advantages of using edge computing is that we can reduce the distance that data travels. And when we make data travel through our networks, it spends energy and it requires power. But if we can reduce the distance that data travels, we're going to reduce the amount of energy required for this. And it has also been recently shown that the CO2 footprint in sending data can also be reduced by using the edge. So there are a combination of arguments, the total energy consumed in sending data, the CO2 footprint, and also maybe lowering our reliance on power-hungry centralised data centres. So you see edge computing as a future way in which
2: we can help to manage our storage and processing of data But where is it actually at
3: in terms of technological development? So within the technological landscape, edge computing is still in its infancy. But there are a number of market trends that we're seeing at the moment that assure us that edge computing is here to stay for a while. Uh, So, for example, there have been substantial investments made by major telecoms and Internet providers, hardware manufacturers and vendors and technology providers worldwide. Now, this is evidenced simply by the amount of edge-enabled gateways and routers and micro and modular data centers that are becoming available in the market. The strategic direction of many of the standardization bodies like ETSI, which is the European Telecommunications Standard Institute, or the International Telecommunications Institute, they all seem to have initiatives to bring compute and storage to the edge of the network. We are seeing design and development of novel processes for edge computing and edge-specific applications. And we are also seeing the convergence of, of the telecoms industry and the IT industry for delivering compute worldwide. So I believe all these are kind of suggestive of the fact that edge computing is going to become a reality rather than stay just as a vision.
2: Are there issues around security and also privacy to deal with if we're talking about a system that is much more decentralized and has more stakeholders involved?
3: So one of the advantages of using edge computing is that we might be able to surmount some of the privacy challenges that we have faced in the past. So user data being unethically harvested or user data leaving a particular geographic boundary and being processed elsewhere and creating difficulty for people and so on. So edge computing enables us to tackle some of these privacy challenges, but as you say, we are exposing a larger attack surface and therefore there are going to be certain security challenges as well. Now, going past those security and privacy challenges, there are other issues around culture, for example, So to deliver edge computing, we need the telecoms and the IT sector to join forces. And they have only started coming out of their silos. We need the synergy of both these sectors to deliver edge computing vision. There are plenty of legal and geopolitical barriers that we'll need to overcome as well. And as you've indicated, there are more stakeholders at play now than when it was just a handful of cloud providers. So trust and accountability is going to be a challenge. And this context, we'll also need to articulate some of the risks and responsibilities and so on. The technology landscape is moving in that direction. We are already seeing some sort of applications that make use of the edge there are a number of converging technologies at the moment 5g autonomous cars ai and so on that all require and can deliver edge computing so i would say you know within maybe five years or within a decade and worst case scenario within my lifetime i think edge computing should become a reality
2: bless and vargas from queen's university belfast we also heard today from Ancrae Spuck at the University of Adelaide and Anthony van der Ent at the University of Queensland. My colleague and co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.